We'll now look together uh, for a third time at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I can now confirm there will be a fifth sermon on the will of God. Uh, So, part three of five. Hear God's word. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, you call us here to many things, most especially in light of this sermon, not to be conformed to this world. We pray that through the preaching you might open up this text to us in a way that, frankly, Lord, would never occur to us just sitting there reading it on our laps at home. But would you bring the word to us not only with greater fullness of understanding, but also power to live. You command, so you also provide and provide us that grace by which we might live out this command through the preaching and many other ways. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. One of the ways that we could look at what Paul is describing here. Uh, In Romans chapter 12 through 15, Uh, now I say 12 through 15 and I exclude 16 because 16 is largely greetings, uh, though there's a little bit of admonition at the end. So we could say 12 through 16, but he is giving us what I could call uh, the, the portrait of the Christian man. This is the kind of life the Christian is called to live. And when the Christian lives like this, he is evidently living As a Christian. And we come now to the third part of this opening foundational exhortation on living the Christian life. We are considering, in a sense, we could say not only the foundation for Christian living, but the whole of it all at once. And having considered in this general way, we will come to the particular details and problems that confront us as we try to live the Christian life uh, once we get to verse 3 and following. And so first we've seen, if we divide this into five parts, we've seen that the attitude and disposition of the Christian must be that of sacrifice and of service or worship, which, let us be honest, those are almost bad words today, are they not? Sacrifice and service, I think we could say of the 21st century man in America, those are not common words anymore. Many will speak of their rights, few will speak of their Willingness to sacrifice. And yet, this is what the Christian is called to fundamentally and foundationally in living the Christian life. This is what Jesus Christ is calling each of you to do as you follow him. It is fundamental to the Christian life and the Christian outlook that the whole of our lives, not part of it, but all of it, is to be used in God's service. Especially, Paul says, in the use of our bodies. Use your bodies in in his service, not in the service of sin, number one. Number two which we considered last time, we saw how this was our reasonable service or our spiritual worship. A way of describing not only Christian worship, it certainly describes that, which is spiritual worship, but also the whole of the Christian life. And so now we come to the third part of this in which the apostle tells us in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. The first thing that I would notice about that is that it's a negative statement. And so often that's what you find in the Bible, a prohibition. Before we are told what to do, we are told what not to do. If you look at the Ten Commandments, which we read earlier in this service, 
you will see this clearly. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Well, here's another, you shall not in the Bible. You shall not be conformed to this world, which is a way, I think, of summarizing certainly commands 5 through 10. I'm saying very often the law comes to us in this negative form. It's interesting even if you think about what God was doing in the garden when he prohibited Adam from eating of the tree that he gave him a negative command. You shall not eat of this tree. Isn't that interesting? I had almost said that the negative emphasis is on account of the presence of sin. But we must be even more careful how we frame this. Because it isn't enough, uh, or it isn't uh, necessary for sin to be present. It is enough merely for sin to be a possibility. For the command to be in this negative form. At any rate, John Murray puts it helpfully when he says, Paul is saying, do not be conformed to this world. He states it in this negative way because... Murray says it is realistic. It takes account of the presence of sin. In other words, it's quite clear that Paul is aware, and this is where we can relate immediately to this text. This is why we open, or before we open uh, the reading, we sang a hymn of confession and contrition. Paul is acknowledging in this realistic way that these Christians were already doing this in some sense. In some measure, they were being or they had been conformed to this world. There was too much of the world in their life. They were too worldly as Christians. Can we also hear Paul on some level confessing it was true even of himself? Oh, I confess this is too true of myself as well. I am a sinner. Does he not confess that in chapter 7? And does he not in essence say there in chapter 7, as any Christian could say or as any good pastor could say of himself and to his people, isn't it true that too much of the world is still in me? And I know too much of the world is still in you. The reason I know that you need to hear these words, do not be conformed to this world, is because to some extent you have. And to some extent, you will be conformed to this world. Is there any Christian, even the most seasoned, even the most sanctified, who cannot confess a degree of worldliness in his life? And so realizing this, the good pastor that Paul was, which means that he was honest and realistic about the presence of sin in his life. He was honest and realistic about the presence of sin in the lives of the people he was preaching to. He simply tells them. And and we need to appreciate the simplicity, but also the force of these words. Do not be conformed to this world. Again, he says, in essence, I realize in some sense you've been doing this. Listen to me. I confess in some sense I've done so as well. But I'm beseeching you. I'm begging you by the mercies of God to cease in this activity. To cease allowing the world to shape and to form and to fashion you after its likeness. Don't you realize your danger? Don't you realize the catastrophe that this will bring? Do not be conformed to this world. Seven words that are potent. Seven words I would say that the Christian needs to hear every day. 
These are seven words you need to say to yourself, beloved, every single day. And there will be moments where you realize you will come to your senses and say, I see that I'm being conformed to this world once again. I need to break free from this. Do you see this is the battle we are always fighting? Every single one of us needs this negative, urgent admonition ringing in our ears always. Of course, we realize at the same time that there is the positive counterpart on the other side. The New Testament teaching on ethics is never negative only. The Old Testament isn't either. But especially as we come to the New Testament, we find a fuller picture of the positive. Again, what I'm calling the portrait of the Christian man. We don't just see what he isn't, but we see what he is. And we find that, of course, in the next phrase, positively, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which will require its own sermon. And so let us see, we not only need to know what not to do, but we need to know what to do. And the Bible gives us both sides of this. But let us also see that the order is important. You don't begin with the positive. You begin with the negative. For I cannot be renewed in my mind or transformed by the renewing of my mind until I have first ceased to be conformed and transform, uh, conformed and fashioned rather by this evil age in which we live. And so I would begin by considering the Christian position, especially in relation to the world. You see, just as soon as a man becomes a Christian, that immediately becomes for him a very pressing issue. I remember my own experience and my own conversion. I doubt there was any issue that vexed me more. The world, do you know what I'm talking about? How difficult it is to live as a Christian in this world. How am I to function in it now that I've been taken out of it? What's my relation to the world to be? That's a question every Christian needs not only to be asking, but he needs an answer to. And I certainly hope that's a question you've been asking yourself. But realize the problem, why this is so difficult. All of us are born into this world. And to some degree, all of us have all along from the first day been formed and fashioned and shaped by it. Even those, now I am speaking from personal experience. This is the chagrin of a Christian parent. Even the children of Christian parents. The Christian parent realizes that the world is having a say in the lives of my children. I want to keep it out, but it's coming in. All of us, all of us, to some degree from the first day in which we entered this world, have been formed and fashioned and shaped by it. Simply by virtue of the fact that we live in it. And it is constantly, constantly exerting its influence upon us. Of course, this is what we mean when we say something is worldly. We say there is, uh, we're speaking of a Christian. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're speaking of an unbeliever. But at any rate, when we say that something is worldly, what we're saying is there's too much of the world in it. And I, I as a Christian, find that distasteful. It is unsettling to my conscience. Something is worldly when it shares in the values and the commitments and the priorities of the sinful, evil world in which we live. Let me just give you an example 
And you'll see that it isn't always sin that I'm talking about. Something can be worldly without being sinful. The world is obsessed with sports. Is there anything that the modern American is more obsessed with than sports? In in fact, I could speak of the whole world. There is an obsession. There is an element of religious fanaticism and worship. And so the man who is obsessed with sports is a man who is behaving in a worldly manner. That's the point. And by the way, I'm speaking, I think in this church mostly, uh, to many of the young men who are so eager, the young boys who are so eager to talk about sports after the sermon is finished. You see, I'm saying you're behaving as the world behaves, and God is calling you to behave in a different manner. It doesn't have to be sin, you see, though it often is. Much of what the world does and what the world prizes and considers to be good and worthwhile is sinful in the extreme. And so very often when we are speaking of something being worldly, we are talking about something that is so incredibly sinful. For instance, consider in the world in which we live, the the commitments of advocates of abortion. Or of homosexuality. That, those are priorities. They've almost become sacraments in the modern religion. Is there anything more sinful? And yet is there anything more worldly? The man or the woman who's being shaped and fashioned by the world. Is someone who will say these things are good rather than bad. But you see as soon as we become Christians ourselves. We realize that our position. And our, in this world, and our relationship to this world has changed fundamentally. And this causes us to reevaluate our relation to this world. And it is here that we hear the words of Paul being spoken. And instinctively we grasp that they are right. They ring true in the ears of the new man. And we, we realize that these are words that we must live by. Do not be conformed to this world. We see as new men and women in Christ that there's no way to be a Christian truly unless we are those who cease to be conformed to this world. Here then are words which describe a new life, a new commitment, a new outlook on this world. We no longer look for the world to tell us how to think, for the world to tell us what's important or what we should do, what we should value, what we should prize. More often than not, we see how much the world is wrong in its priorities In what it's advocating for. Becoming a Christian involves repudiating the world. Have you realized that yet, beloved? It makes a man realize just how much the world has shaped and fashioned his life and his outlook. And in a sense you could say, and and I'm sure that you've realized this about yourself. If you spent any amount of time in this world as a Christian. In a sense you could say, you spend the rest of your life trying to undo it. Because you realize more and more just how much the world has has had a say in your life from the very beginning. Oh, I see how worldly I've become. And I spend the rest of my days seeking to undo the damage. And hence, by the way, the second admonition. Be, uh, I'm going to use the King James. Be ye transformed. I need to be transformed. Why? Because I've been fashioned in the wrong way. I need to be refashioned in the right way. And certainly we could also say, not only are we trying to undo the damage, but we're also trying to stop it. 
I realize the world is pressing in. It's still seeking to have a say upon me and my wife and my children and my church. I'm trying to stop the damage now. Do not be conformed to this world. Do you see how urgently pressing these words are for the Christian? Oh, Paul says, don't you see now, now that Christ has saved you, how much a say the world has, how much a say the world has had in your life? In everything that was important to you, and yet now don't you see how damaging this has been to you, to your eternal soul? to your sanctification and your growth in grace. It's time to stop. It's time to turn and to go on to something else, something better. It's time to live as Christian men and women, not as the world does, but as Christ Jesus calls us to live. Another way to make this point is to look at the world in another way. Not merely as that which is sinful though it is, but is that which is dangerous, and terribly so. This world is a place of terrible danger, trial, and temptation, especially for the Christian. It's this very thought, indeed, that led Bunyan to write Pilgrim's Progress, describing the pilgrim's dangerous journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. The unbeliever, by contrast, enjoys relative peace in this life, but the believer is always being troubled, if only, and and of course we see Jesus speaking of this in the Gospels, if only because the world hates him, even as it hated his master. Now why is that? Surely by now you know. It's because the world demands allegiance. The world says, be fashioned, be conformed by me. And that's the very thing the Christian cannot do. The Christian, in his commitment to Jesus Christ, is unwilling To obey the world in its demand for allegiance. And so the Christian must, for the rest of his days, endure the hostility of this world, as well as the many temptations the devil throws at him. You see, and this is the imagery the church has been using from the beginning, the Christian is never at rest in this world. We are enrolled not in the church triumphant, which is at rest and at peace, but we are enrolled for the time being in the church militant. And what does that mean? It means that we are still engaged in the battle and the fight. It means that there are still trials and hostilities to be endured for every good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so long as we live here in this world, we are called to suffer as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And didn't, well, didn't we just read that in... Uh, the membership uh, section of the directory of worship. In other words, we're called to fight. And in fighting, what are we doing? Well, we're refusing to be conformed by the world. We are refusing to give in to the pressures it places upon us, however great they are. And so what I'm saying is this. Realize the world in which you live. So long as you live here in this world... We as Christians must endure hardships and face many difficulties and carry on in faith as pilgrims, as strangers, until we arrive at the heavenly city. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. But how terrible it would be, uh, as John Bunyan portrays it in Pilgrim's Progress, if we should be going along the way and should be called in to join in the fun of Vanity Fair and give up the fight and give up. The race. If on our way to heaven we should be conformed to this world, 
So don't be conformed to this world, Paul says. How does it happen as the next point? Consider the many New Testament teachings on this idea. One of the most obvious ways is to love the world. To fall in love with the world and the things of the world. What does John say? Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And on he goes along those same lines. So we must start there in the realm of the heart, of the desires. There is nothing as we examine our position, especially our starting points, more important than the heart. We must ask ourselves every day. And you see, this is where the question of conformity comes in. What do I love most? What is it that I'm living for? What is it that motivates me to act? Number two, another way it happens is following the course of the world in its desire and pursuit of sin. There is in this world a kind of obsession. Paul spoke of it in Romans chapter 6. He speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 2. The world is so eager to sin. As the Puritans would say, it is almost as though the world is in a rush or in a hurry to get to hell. They can't wait to get there. That's the way the world lives. And what Paul says is, you used to live like that uh, too. That was the way you used to walk uh, until Christ saved you. And now you've begun to live and to think and to act in a different way. And he made you alive, Ephesians chapter 2, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. You see, that's the idea. You used to walk along with the world. You used to join in the fun, among whom, he says, verse 3, also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as others. But now you've been taken up, Paul says, as it were, into heaven. You've been seated along with Christ. He says it here in Ephesians 2, if I were to keep reading. He says it in Colossians 3. He also says it in Ephesians 4. Oh, you used to live like this, but you don't live like it anymore. Don't you see that? Don't follow the course of the world, number two. But number three, and I've already spoken of this. I'm answering the question, how does it happen? How does it happen that someone is conformed to the world? Well, we're conformed by the world's outlook. That's the third way. I've spoken of a kind of worldliness that isn't necessarily sinful, but which is nonetheless not biblical. It all has to do with one's priorities, with one's commitments. You ask yourself the question, what's important? Again, what motivates me? Another way to make this point is to say the Bible must have the final say in our lives. Well, let me state it even stronger. The Bible must have the first say in our lives as well as the final say in our lives. In other words, what I'm saying is this. When Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, he's equally saying, be conformed to something else. Be conformed to another standard. Let that have a greater say in your life. Stop listening to the world and start listening to God. We must be concerned to be biblical in our outlook and living. We must be scriptural Christians, as Thomas Watson says. What defines what's important to us as Christians is the word of God, the teachings of Jesus, and so on. Well, examples may help. 
This can happen in our outlook or in our thinking. Paul talks in chapter 8 about the spiritual mind. And that's the idea here. The contrast between the carnal mind in his thought and the spiritual mind in his thought. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And on he goes. That's the idea. It has to do with the mind, with your thinking. And we'll go there next. I mean in the next sermon. Be renewed in your mind. And do you see this difference now that you're saved, by the way? Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4. If we had time, I would dive in there and spend some time there. But in many ways, Ephesians 4 is the key parallel text. And Paul says, you know, you used to think like this, but now you've learned another way of living. And you are, he says, this is the way you've learned Christ. And you've learned Christ in this way, so walk in this way. But it has to do with the mind first and foremost. But the second way that we could put this is that it works its way out in our life, obviously. Our priorities and our commitments inform our lives. And that is why the Christian looks so different than the world. At least he ought to. And I could speak of this uh, further in two ways. The way the Christian differs from the world in which he lives. On the one hand, here is the Christian in the world. He's living among the people of the world. Look how different he thinks and acts. Listen to Jesus, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 13, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We could find similar passages and. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, the bright shining lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. What's the Christian? He, he's a light. He's salt. He's placed into this world not to be conformed to it, but to shine forth the light of God. And so what we notice in the Christian as he functions and as he lives in this world is not a similarity, but the difference between the Christian man and the world in which he lives. Christianity, this is one way to capture the point. I've often heard it said is essentially a countercultural movement. There's something different about it. It goes against the grain. And so you don't try to win the man to Christ by becoming like him. And you see how often in evangelistic settings people become worldly. Why? Because they're trying to win the man of the world. And they think, well, the way to win him is to become like like him, to relate to him. And yet it never occurs to such a man, what do I have to offer him if I'm just like him? I'm just giving him more of the world, aren't I? And he has enough of that already, doesn't he? No, it's the fact that you're different. The fact that you know it and that he, he notices it as well. That gives you something to say to him. But we could also speak of the Christian in the church. In her life and her worship. And here these words do not be conformed to this world. I'm indebted to Mart Lloyd-Jones in making this point. The trouble with so much of the church today is that she's become worldly. And what he means and what I mean. Is not so much that the church 
in her worship and her life have become explicitly sinful. Just that the church has seemed today to go out of her way to look as much like the world as possible. And again, the thought seems to be that's the way to win people. But again, that misses this as our starting point. We are not, Paul says, to try to look as much like the world as possible. That is to be conformed to this world. No, we are to make absolutely clear to the world that our commitments lie elsewhere. We are those whose commitments can be found in the Bible. Our allegiance is not to this world, but to Jesus Christ. And whenever the commitments of the world and our commitment as Christians should clash, as they often will, we, we know which way we will go. Not as the world goes, but as our Lord commands us to go. You know, another way to make this point, and this is something the world is meant to see, there's something otherworldly about Christianity. There's something otherworldly about a Christian man who's living as he should. Something heavenly about him. Almost as though he's from another world. You see, that's what the Christian is like as he's placed in this world. And by the way, that's the whole appeal of Christianity, is it not? These people seem to know something about heaven. And that's what the world needs to see. That's what we're offering to them, not more of this world. They can get enough of that here as it is. But that by becoming Christians, we tell them that they will have treasure in heaven, a treasure they cannot lose. But a third answer to the, or excuse me, a fourth answer to the question, how does it happen? How does a man become worldly? Well, he becomes preoccupied with this world. As opposed to preoccupied with the world to come. His outlook and his, his values become temporal rather than eternal. There are some such as John Murray who suggest that the whole of the contrast indeed is found in this thought. He is preoccupied with this world and this life rather than with the life to come. There is a kind of worldliness which is obsessed with this life and this world. Which John says in verse 17 is passing away. Don't you realize that? And don't you see that the world thinks little of heaven, the man of this world. Their every thought turns on getting more for themselves here and now. But the Christian, we could say, has a different kind of obsession. Robert Haldane, quoting the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, says, They who mind earthly things are described as enemies of the cross. But the conversation of believers as being pilgrims and strangers is in heaven. Well, let me come to another point, and that is, am I saying that we have nothing to do with this world? Very often, this point has been made, and then it has been caricatured by enemies of the teaching. Well, you're being overly spiritual. You're saying that the Christian has nothing to do with the world. And, and very often, Christians have been driven to extremes. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it, uh, obscure, obscurantism. I'm not even sure I can say that word, but you get the point. We become obscure. The Amish, for instance, I'm going to go out of the world. I'm going to form a commune. I'm going to have nothing to do with it. Or we look at the early church and the ascetics and the, the monastical vows. Let, let us get as far away from the world as possible. Is that what is being taught? I would say obviously not. But here is where the difficulty arises, and, and, and each of us faces this every day. I live in this world, and yet I am called every day not to be shaped and to be fashioned 
by it. And so the question is, if I'm not to go and to live on a pole, as one of the ancient uh, ascetics did, or go hide away in a mountain or a Christian commune, how much of the world is too much? I'm telling you that as a Christian man and as a Christian woman, your emphasis is to be spiritual. Your outlook is to be heavenly. Your treasure is to be in heaven. And yet, here you are in this world. Am I saying that this world is of no value? No, I'm not. I cannot answer the question for you, by the way, how much of the world is too much. I can only tell you that that is the business of the Christian life. That is the concern of the Christian every day of sanctification, to engage the world and yet not to be uh, transformed by the world. Every day you give yourself to answering that question. But let me say this as a starting point. If you live by this maxim, you will, you will do well. Do not be conformed by this world. Beloved, if you would be conformed to any world, Paul is saying, and I am saying, let it be the next. Let your life, let your outlook and your heart be fashioned and shaped and molded by the life which is to come. For there, Paul tells us, our our citizenship lies, Philippians chapter 3, and from which we await Colossians chapter 3, which is another helpful companion text. Well, let me read it. Verses 1 through 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And what he goes on to say from there is how you're meant to live the life that you live in this world. In verses 5 and following. Don't hear me saying then. That this life and this world have no value. They do. Every single one of us as Christian people should be having families. We should be going to church. We should be seeking to make an honest living. We should be doing all that we can for our, for our country as Christians. I'll, I'll give you another Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. He says, and I think this captures the point very well. There is nothing unnatural about the Christian. He doesn't say, well, I'm a Christian now. I'm not a father anymore. I'm not a citizen. I'm not a son. Nothing of the kind. In fact, it is becoming a Christian that makes him the best sort of father and the best sort of son and brother and citizen and employee and employer. Do you understand the point? Christian people always make the best citizens. If you you listen, for instance, to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says, I want you to be a kind of light shining among the Gentiles. What does he go on to say? He says, be good citizens. He says, be good husbands, be good wives, be good employees, be good employers. Bring your Christianity with you wherever you are. Let the light of the gospel shine wherever you find yourself. How clear that will be uh, will become in the teaching which ensues in Romans chapters 12, 13, uh, and 14. But if you were to ask why it is true that Christians always make the best citizens and the best husbands and so on or to use a historical example what was it about the protestant work ethic that totally transformed the west well my answer is this it was not their preoccupation with this world at all it was that they in all that they did in this life aimed at the glory of god They were in their earthly labors, storing up treasures for themselves in heaven. That's the kind of thing the world will never understand. But it's the kind of riddle only the Christian 
can solve, that the man who is of most earthly good is the man who is heavenly minded. Haven't you often heard that it's the opposite? The man who's heavenly minded is of no earthly good. That is a lie. Don't listen to that. It's the man who's heavenly minded, who is of the most earthly good. And perhaps the reason you've done so little for Christ in this world is because you're too preoccupied with it. Did you ever think of that? Let me come. I know, I know we're going long. I'll blame the new member for that. <laughs> Gospel remedies to worldliness. And I'll do this as quickly as we can. Four gospel remedies to worldliness. I'm confessing to, to a too large extent, you and I are both worldly. And we need to stop being so worldly. I would remind you once more in the first place of the mercies of God. I would beseech you by the mercies of God. Do not be conformed to this world. Never, oh never, consider this admonition on its own. This is where the Amish go wrong. This is where the Pharisees go wrong. Uh, in any age, it's that they treat this as a bare command. And so what happens? They become legalists. If you try to engage the world purely in this negative fashion, I promise you, you'll become a legalist. You'll become a Pharisee. No, hear the admonition. I, I admonish you by the mercies of God. Don't you realize that you as a Christian are living not under the law but under grace? And now you are seeking to live out the Christian life and to engage the world as a Christian man. The way to avoid worldliness is by the power of grace. Number two. Remember always what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is a kind of living sacrifice, Paul says. He's been bought with a price. He belongs to God. He's been ransomed out of this sinful, evil world. And so when he's gotten too much of the world into his heart, when he finds I've begun to love the world too much, and, well, I confess I've become a bit too worldly, he needs to realize that he's forgotten who he is and how he's meant to live. He's meant to live as a sacrifice unto God. Number three. Let every Christian realize that there is grace to be had for those who have become worldly. Hear me when I say the Christian case is never hopeless. Never. However worldly he's become, there's always hope for him. Because the grace of Jesus Christ is always stronger than the powers which oppose us and seek to enslave us. Oh, worldly Christian, I tell you, there's help to be had. Every day and in every moment, there is grace Enough for you if you will but have it in the hour and the moment of need. Hebrews chapter 4, four uh, verse 14 and following. Or listen to John when he says that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And how easily we forget that. But number four and finally, the fourth gospel remedy to worldliness in the Christian is found in the next phrase. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Thank God once more. Christian teaching is never negative only. It's positive as well. And so when I say don't be conformed to this world. Don't stop there. But keep going. Give yourself equally. To being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And on that we will have to devote another sermon. For now I say once again. Do not be conformed to this world. Amen. And let us come to the table.